Welcome to the Sixth Dimension Podcast, where we review cult movies, horror movies, movies that you've never heard of. Uh, yes, I'd say cult thing. So, Darren, um, yeah. you're, officially, uh, you're officially, I guess, our new co-host, a new co-host uh, among many, but definitely uh, you, you've received some uh, high accolades, not just from me, but also from your uh, from your contemporaries. And I had a couple of friends also compliment you on your... Uh, on your uh, recent speaking style. I was actually li- going to leave it at a complete surprise until we went on air. Um, but um, a lot of people have been complimenting you, well, three people, saying, oh, I really like the new co-host. He's very articulate. And uh, a couple of people said, uh, yeah, basically around those those sort of things. So fueled congratulations. By fueled, really- fueled by coffee. So. <laughs> but, yeah, you, you, got, uh, you got one that said uh, you're very articulate, another that says you're very learned, and another set that says you you have uh, have told some very good stories. Ah, okay. Well, that's lovely. That's really nice to hear. It's uh, nice to get a compliment. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard to react to a compliment, though. Uh, you Thank know, you, everyone. Aside from, yeah, thanks. And stuff like that. But, okay, let's get straight into the podcast. Let's do uh, it. What's your, who is your favorite uh, Bond girl? Favorite Bond girl? Mm. Maybe oh, I don't know. I quite like Eva Green from the newer ones. Yes, right. Um, who else? Who uh, was Barbara Bach? Oh, Barbara uh, Bach. She was nineteen seventy. Was she living let die? Maybe wasn't she? I can't. Uh, I quite like Maud Adams as well. Actually, who was in Man with a Golden Gun and Doctor Pussy. Yeah. I don't know. It's, that's a good one. You've thrown me. Yeah, I know well, what my Bond film is. Uh, no. What's your favourite Bond film? On the Manchester Secret Service. It's the only one I've ever bought um, and consistently bought on different formats. And I've always liked it from from being a little kid seeing it on TV to... Uh, I think it's it, it encompasses everything about James Bond in mm-hmm. one film. And I've... You know, growing up, I, you always heard oh, Lazenby isn't Connery, isn't Roger Moore, isn't this. And I actually never had a problem with him. I actually really liked what he did with James Bond. I loved the kind of – the scenes in On the Majesty's Secret Service, which I felt were so fantastic, and I've never seen him kind of do riffs on it um, mm-hmm. in, in subsequent Bonds. And that's when he goes and he does the photocopying – I think in Blowfield's safe and he, he finds it like a copy of Playboy in a desk and pulls it out. <laughs> he puts his feet on the table and he flicks around. I thought that's just so quintessential James Bond. It's, it's kind of really total Playboy, arrogant kind of, and I thought Lazenby would have been actually a very, very good James Bond if he'd, if he'd carried on and screwed it up for himself. I thought he, I thought he was great. I, I, I love that film. And obviously the soundtrack is just sublime. I mean, John Barry's, Full soundtrack, every track on it is is great, and um, the look of it, that widescreen kind of um, format that it was filmed in, um, you know, black bars, top and bottom, um, great. I really love that. Wait, I, I, I was sort of a fan of um, 
what's her name? Who was the Bond girl in that? Um, oh, what's her name? The Avenger. Oh, oh Di- Diana Rigg? Diana Rigg. Never a fan of her. Uh, uh, but what a great ending. I, I agree with you with about Diana. I think she definitely overlaps uh, in terms of personality. She overlaps George Lazenby. Like she, it, it, it so almost seems the- like it could be her film if she was given more scenes. It just she t- she takes she's too strong a presence, which is but not a bad thing. I just that's like not a bad thing maybe for the character, and that's why she falls for me. She what she didn't just fall into his arms like exactly the quintessential <laughs> archetypal bomb girl, which is. You know, she's like she was something different, and I guess it works. It's a great film. It works really well. I mean, there's great things where there's a fight scene, and he walks out of a hotel room, and he sees a tray of um, toast and caviar, and takes a taste and saunters out after just you know he's got chaos around him and all these kind of um, baddies on the floor, knocked out after a fight, and just and that's just you just don't see that. It's just under parody, but really good. Well, that's right. what that's what the, the Bond films are. They sort of stride that fine line between parody and actual Bond, ty- actual uh, spy thrillers. So, like films by like what's it? Films like um, Dean Martin uh, was Matt Helm, yeah, plays and uh, James Coburn. What's it? The Flint series. They're a bit too parodic, if that's a word. They lean too much into the period that they made in, whereas Bond never did that. Bond. I think plays into the text that they derive from. So it, it, it kind of, it's a film between the lines. It, 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 it's in its own world, its own, its own universe. Indeed. I mean, I'll tell you what's quite interesting. Have you ever seen the kind of latter day um, OS mm-hmm. 117s, the French kind of spoof person with Jean Dujardin? Yes. Um, I saw fantastic. them first. Fantastic. And then I found out that they were actually a serious, uh, like not a serious series back in the 60s. Yeah. But they were originating in a more serious, in 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 line with like James Bond. Yeah, yeah, he was the French James Bond basically, and uh, yeah. Michael Habitikus, who did the artist with Jean Dujardin, did the two, and they're both very very good. They're so well made, <laughs> so well made, brilliant. I mean, and he's great, Jean Dujardin. He's he's kind of disappeared back to France really as an actor. He hasn't quite crossed over internationally because I, I think he's really good. I mean, even mm. even in those spoof films, you could tell he, he would be probably very good as a serious actor. And I have seen him in serious roles, uh, French films, and he's, he's come over very well. He's, he's really good. He's, his comic timing, even through tra- uh, subtitles, is superb. Yes. Great actor. Um, for me, the the number one, I was the number one Bond girl would have to be Eva Green as Vesper Lind in yep. Casino Royale. She just embodies everything. I've seen her with Tim Burton. I've seen her waltzing around North London. With Tim Burton? Are they dating or something? I think they might be. I I saw them a couple of years ago. I was in my, where my old flat was, um, it was a local bar. And I was walking out, I was walking in and they were walking out together. I think she lives in St. John's Wood. Don't don't quote me on that. Um, I think she lives in London. I think partly anyway. That's fantastic. Um, she, I, I do know that Tim Burton has two houses separate to one another, one for him and one for uh, his ex-wife. Well, I lived opposite. I, uh, oh, that's Tim right, Burton, yeah. I, you yeah, I, I, yeah, it was me. I, I, I lived opposite and I used to see, them, see him all the time. All, I mean, seeing um, Helen the Bonham Carter was like a daily ritual. It was never, 
something I never I never knew and she was always sometimes in yoga with me but I, I, I never I didn't I don't know but I used to, we had face recognition you know when you've been living somewhere for a long time and you walk past someone for years and years and years and you know each other but you don't ever really say hello and that's it but um what it is it's it's this kind of gated huge I don't know what it what it was prior to that it it, it, it looks like almost like a school or something and it's one building. They've just got a, 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 I think, a, a, um, they've just separated it. What it was like that. It was, it was probably one building that was converted into two houses, and they bought, bought both houses and they kept the conversion so you could just walk through to each other. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, my second favorite is Sophie Marceau in uh, one of the worst Bond films, The World Is Not Enough. Terrible film. Uh, and uh, Barbara Carrera. I can't remember. Which oh, one Barbara Carrera was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't remember which which one is she in. She's in another bad one. She's in she's good. Your eyes only, isn't she? <sighs> never say never again. Oh, she never. No, I thought that was Kim Basinger. Is it? I don't know. Maybe they're in both. Oh yeah, she. Is that the one that Kim Basinger? I have to. I'll have to look it up. I, I have to oh, admit, yeah, Basinger is in it. Yeah. 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 Oh, wait. Which one is Barbara Carrera in? Oh no, this is going to be fun. The listeners and I think she's in to us thinking. Pure Eyes Only, I'm sure. which is a bit of a kind of a film that's a bit of a lost. The great film. thing about Bond girls is that you can have multiple Bond girls in a Bond film. You can only have one Bond, even though arguably the name James Bond is a code name that's assigned to the 007. No, that was a rumor. It's it's not. They were, they were thinking of doing that so they could maybe do a film where they had Sean Connery and Timothy Dalton and whoever was alive to come back and oh. say, you know, Bond. It's not James Bond. James Bond. I mean, I've not been a massive. I love. I like Casino Royale. I thought that was mm-hmm. great, but I've never been. I've, and I thought Quantum of Solace was better than people give it credit for. Um, but I actually it's definitely not, better than Spectre. Yeah. Spectre's a terrible film. <laughs> it comes over like a BBC version of Spooks, and I tell you, which is what is awful as well. Mm. I'm going to be controversial here. I'm not a fan of Skyfall. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit bloated. It's very um, minimalist. I think they're, they're they're hoping for I don't know, they're like a like a nouveau sort of stuff. They're more interested in selling Heineken than they are making a good Bond film. I think. I, I think they're the, the making him. I hate the fact that all the Bond films have a connection. I like the fact that they almost soft rebooted with the same Bond every every film as it was. It was a whole mm. different story. They don't need to be connected. I hate the fact that they're trying to delve, create this past for James Bond uh, and have the connected blow fell to him. Even though I, I think Christoph Waltz is a fantastic actor, but I don't think he was particularly right for Blofeld. I know who I would have cast. As um, as Blofeld, and the fact is, when they reboot, I think you know what I've heard. Don't quote me on this. Mm. I think the broccoli is after uh, No Time to Die are going to sell the franchise. I think they're going to do a, a George Lucas. I think they're going to sell it to. I think Warner Brothers are going for it. I think they're going to buy it. Mm-hmm. I think they're going to buy it for Christopher Nolan to reboot. Ah. So let's see if that, that's, project, it makes a lot of sense. He, he's always wanted to do a bomb film. And I think he'll only do a bomb film if um, 
if he's got control of it. And what better way to kind of bring it back would be to kind of for him to be the goal, do what he did with Batman. And yeah, yeah. Well, I, I hope they do is, keep Blofeld. And you know who I want to play Blofeld? Oh, yeah. He, he's a Canadian actor. And did you ever see Hell on Wheels with, um, it's a TV show with Anson Mount, which was a great show. Yeah, wasn't it? Did, is Was Kevin Costner in it? No, it's a TV show. Anson Mount is kind of a West, it's kind of like a. Yeah, kind of I, I know that. Uh, sorry, I'm thinking of the Hatfield and McCoys. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, it's almost like a, a Deadwood kind of TV show. Yeah. And there's an actor who played the, like, the main villain. He's called Christopher Hedadal. Hedadal? Hedadal? Hedadal. I can't pronounce his last name. Sure. And he, he played the Swede in Hell on Wheels. And okay. I'm not joking. Shave his head, you have got your modern day Blofeld. He's okay. a really good actor. In fact, in the script I was telling you about that, you know who's reading it. Um, that I want to direct. Uh, I'd like him to be over uh, in the role with him in mind. Actually. I think he's a oh, great, great. Yeah, character. I can see him now. I, mean, I actually looked him up. Christopher Hayerdahl. Hayerdahl. Yeah, um, yeah, he definitely would. He, he's physically. I've never seen him as an actor. Yeah, he's great. He's really good. He, he for me, that's 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 your Blofeld. Yeah, that, he, he would make a great Blofeld. A great Blofeld. Um, it what it did strike me as strange. I. I I don't mind bold choices for directors for franchise. I think that's a good thing. But I was really excited to see No Time to Die uh, because Carrie Fukunaga, uh, he's a really interesting filmmaker, and he's never really made any project that he's vied to make with exception for this. So for years he was preparing to make three separate projects. One of them was It. One of them was... Uh, uh, Oh, it was a reboot of uh, the Narnia books, and then there was something else. He was going to make. I tell you what, it was. I think from what I heard, through actually someone who knows him, um, he was preparing to do Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon as a TV show for HBO. Ah, that's the one. Yes. Um, Yeah, he every project that he's vied to make for a long period of time and invested his own artistic and creative input for years and years on it on end he's never got to make he's always called up at last like the last second to 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 make some incredibly intense interesting projects that happened with true detective it happened with jane eyre which is arguably the best jane eyre that i've seen and he did Mm -hmm. that film the beast of no nation and actually hasn't made a film since uh if i recall correctly and thus he's been vied to direct no time to die. So this is going to be the first project that he has invested a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of effort in, in comparison to the months that he spent prepping his previous films. Right. This is the one that he's actually spent, I think, five years trying to make, whereas mm-hmm. everything else had was only assembled in a very short period of time. Now, that's interesting because... It's interesting because this film was going to be released and then the coronavirus hit, so they decided to postpone it. So I'm starting to think yeah. this guy is kind of cursed. It's just a case of a, a bit of bad luck, but the film's in the can. I mean, I've, I heard so many rumours. I mean, at that point when they announced, they were the first to go and say, listen, we're pulling this because mm. what's coming is going to, it's not good. And they got they got quite a lot of bad press of Broccoli's and, you know, um, 
they were smart, and I think they did, they've done the right thing. I mean, he might even get pulled till next year again. Who knows? Yes. There's so much, but this weekend we'll know if Wonder Woman and Tenant talking about Christopher Nolan if if that's going to stick to its release date, which is yeah. August. The, yeah. the, but the thing is, with uh, I, I, from what I speculate, Tenet is about, uh, you know, there was there's this much mystery as was put on Inception. I mean, it seems to be like his new, the, not the new Inception for him, but essentially, you know, that high concept, auteur-driven yeah. science yes. fiction thriller. Yes. Um, that really is almost like what he takes from in terms of influence with for example, that he did with uh, Majesty's Secret Service and Inception. So he's more interested, it seems, in doing... I, I think he... I don't know if he'd burn out doing a film, his own version of James Bond. I don't know if he'd put too much pressure on it nowadays because it seems as though nowadays when he makes a film, there's so much hype that it's impossible for him, he, like any film that he makes nowadays, to not disappoint they all he make was, money, yes, but I don't think I've seen a film of his since uh, The Dark Knight that didn't disappoint had, me and heavily. I mean, it's quite interesting. Um, I, I I like Christopher Nolan. Don't get me wrong. I think he's a. I, but the, I'm I mean, not so, a big. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Memento. I've never been a fan of Memento. I've never enjoyed that film. I found it pompous, boring, and a little bit. Um, not as clever as it thinks it is. The um, one for me was Insomnia. I think that's a really I love well Insomnia, film. but that's a remake. Still, it's it's different enough it's in tone. It's very good. Stand on its own. I think it is, and it's it's two fantastic performances by Pacino and uh, Robin Williams. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Robin Williams is absolutely fantastic in that. I mean, it was a double header with one hour photo. Um, I remember doing actually a double bill of that. I, I bought them both at the same time on DVD. Okay. Rewatched. And, uh, you know, fabulous. Great, great. Robin Williams is very good. He, he was very, very good. A little bit arch at times, and you could see him coming a bit. But I think it's i I'm very sad that when, you know, he, what happened to him, a terrible tragedy, because I think he was a very decent, decent guy by the sounds of it. And I think as an actor, as he aged, it would have been even more interesting. Uh, so it's a bit of a loss, I think. What, uh, Robin Williams? Yeah. Well, yeah, he, had, he had loose body dementia. He was not, he was not, his brain wasn't functioning at 100% capacity. It was functioning at 25% capacity for right. 50% of the day. So yeah. imagine like Robin Williams wandering around with dementia. And you can see it in his last interview that he gives i think for night at the museum or something like that where he just seems he seems like a normal person whereas every time you see him from the camera every time he's got this electricity that is undeniable that electricity is gone and if you see the final films that he made not just night at the museum i'm talking about every film that he made those independent Mm -hmm. films that he made with uh, like dita montoya or whatever his name is um I'm trying to think of the others. He made like a he, – he lent his voice to a – what's his face? A, a, a British film um, that starred oh, – right. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, he, I think it, was, um, a, a, it was by the Pythons, one of yes. the Pythons. Yeah. Gen- and the reason why they 
kept that is because, you know, it's a voice performance and it's very hard to, you know, it's very hard to not see, no, sorry, it's very hard to distinguish the electricity that when you see Robin Williams in front of a camera, you tend to ascribe to Robin Williams. Mm. But the thing is, if you see those final films that he does, the electricity is gone. It's dampened out. And it started actually in the TV series that he did, the final TV series called The Crazy Ones, which is a really interesting show. But it I've doesn't never seen that, but I know of it. Now, now, it doesn't seem like Robin Williams is at 100%. And you ascribe it to age, right? But the thing was, it wasn't just age. It was actually this form of dementia that was eating away his brain. And that's the reason why he killed himself, because he couldn't face the fact that he was losing himself, basically, and he could recognize losing himself on a daily basis through the faces of other people, he said, I believe. When he saw, when he, because he's a comedian, he, you know, enjoys reaction. So when he encountered people every day, he would see in other people's faces no recognition of Robin Williams. And that is so sad. So I said, this was a way of him preserving his dignity. That's, mm-hmm. I, I don't advocate suicide, but that sort of, I can understand. Like, it's got to be really hard for everyone, no matter what, in that situation. But, you know, I, I can understand his form of thinking. If you watch Bobcat Goldthwaite in interviews, Sure. Talking, talking about Robin Williams. Apparently they were best friends, to, especially towards the end of his life. But throughout their lives, they were best friends. Mm. And he talks about Robin Williams in every, every so often he talks about Robin Williams. And he talks about how there was no more Robin towards the end of it. You could see he was gone. Right. And he wanted to get out. Like there was nothing that we could do to stop him. He was going one way or another. And right. that's and that was really powerful. I, I'd actually encourage everyone out there, including you, Darren, <laughs> uh, to to list to check out interviews with Bobcat Goldthwait where he talks about Robin Williams, and then you might then you'll definitely. I'm a big Bobcat Goldthwait fan, actually. Um, I think he's great, and I think he's very, very underrated, um, especially as a director. As a director, he's great. I, what was the film I saw, which I really liked by him the one where it's the guy it's kind of like falling down um oh, was, um god bless america god bless america yeah fantastic uh <laughs> shapes clown you know and I, I loved him in a guilty pleasure police academy too oh yeah yeah he's great brilliant. As, um, brilliant so funny what's his name in the film i, I can do his accent in the film <laughs> But yeah, what's his name? I <laughs> forget. I remember seeing that in the cinema mm. uh, with friends and just crying at his performance. Brilliant. <laughs> and, of course, he did the last great uh, film with Robin Williams, or the last great Robin Williams performance, which was um, The World's, World's Greatest Dad. The World's Greatest Dad, yeah. Which is an amazing drama, sort of really yeah. funny, moving drama. I, I think Bob had now, I think he directs a lot of TV Actually, he, he came out with a TV show called uh, Misfits and Monsters, which is each episode features like uh, is a drama or comedy uh, centered around a monster. And it's just kind of it's actually a really interesting show. Um, it's not necessarily hilarious, but it's really interesting drama, actually kind of comedy, drama, dramedy, whatever you want to call it. And there's like an episode where a guy dates a um, 
dates uh, Neptune's ex-girlfriend, who was a mermaid. Uh, Is it live action or animation? It's uh, live action. There's actually there's one episode that has animation in it, and that's mm-hmm. about a man who voices a uh, an animated character on a mm-hmm. popular TV show, and that right. he does a, he makes him stupid. He makes the character stupid, and then one day this animated character comes to life and threatens him, and he says, "Well, why do you make me stupid? And why do you make me sound stupid? So we're going to change that." And it's actually a really interesting episode. Um, it's only twenty five minutes long. Egypt. Okay, I'm going to check that out. Yeah, he, it's really good. That's why he, he he directs. I've just looked him up. He directed all the Mark Mayron um, TV show, which yes, it's kind of like a poor man's Larry Sand. Um, Louis. Oh, yeah. I was going to say a poor man's Louis, but yeah, yeah, uh, poor man's Kirby enthusiasm. Not quite there, but very entertaining. And I, I actually um, came to it last year. I kind of discovered it on Netflix and kind of went through the first two, I think it's only two or three seasons. Uh, I, I like Mark Mayron. I, I think, uh, I think it was a little bit underrated in um, the Joker. He should have had a bigger part. In fact, he should have had the Robert De Niro part. I never, I didn't like Robert De Niro in Joker. Yeah. I, I remember saying that to a friend of mine too. I remember saying that Mark Maron should have Robert De Niro's part. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I can, I know why the cast De Niro and I, I get it. Um, but um, yeah. So if Todd is listening to this, apologies. Um, but yeah, I, I like Mark Mayron. I think he, I think he's again. He feels like he could be from seventies cinema for some reason. Yes, yeah. It's well, he's it sort of exemplified. I don't know if he can act yet. I don't know if he can act. I've not seen him act as yet, but I'm, I know he's doing stuff. So it'd be interesting to see him. Well, the thing is, what's great about comedians' performances? They're very good at being naturalistic in front of the camera. Very and much. So, yeah. And so Mark Maron. I think is really good at playing himself. He's a really good comedic actor when he plays himself. Yeah, very much. I I personally haven't seen him play anything other than himself. But the thing is, I actually don't like his stand-up that much. I don't think he's a little bit too narcissistic. Yes. Uh, Well, I mean, I just don't think he's funny. But um, but he does play himself really well in the show. I mean, obviously I'm wrong because he is a popular comedian with Netflix specials. But then again, I think he really does work very well right. in the small we're independent all, comedy and low as well. The wrong thing and who are we to say? I mean, Mark Maron's great and, you know, anyone who's successful, you, you, you've got to kind of clap your hands and go, well done because, you know, you've cut through. Exactly. I, Mark Maron, I didn't think, wasn't an overnight success. And the guy stuck with it, and you know he found. I think he had to crash before he became successful. He was, I, I think, he was kind of a comedian that wasn't doing so. It's quite autobiographical, the show. I think. And I think mm. once he started finding his feet with his podcast uh, in the garage, that's when people started picking up with him. So it's kind of based on real life, the TV show to some degree. And you know, yes. I, I applaud him. I applaud anyone who, who who's able to kind of really take maybe perceived failure and create success out of it. And, you know, mm. you know, I, I, who are we to talk? People, it's so easy to knock people. And, you know, I know we're, we're here being a little bit critical and being kind of inverted commas critics because that's the nature of your show and stuff. But you've got to, I respect, you know, anyone who can make a film and get it made. Absolutely. You Absolutely. know, you've got to applaud because it's very hard and it's so easy to knock people from the comfort of your chair 
when you've never made a film and seen how hard it is to make something or perform or act, you know, and we all have things that don't hit and we have things that really hit and it's all, it's, you know, it's a journey. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, just before we get started on the, uh, the film that we're going to be looking at today, which is down to racer. um, I just wanted to ask your opinion on, um, uh, I completely forgot about what it was. Holy shit. No, I, I just I completely forgot. I was um Oh, oh. Damn it. oh my oh. god. It was about a film that's oh yes, that's it. The Go new mini uh, how they they're gonna be uh, making a mini series of Chinatown. Are they? I didn't know that. Did you, uh, well Robert Town and David Fincher are gonna be doing for Netflix the new Chinatown wow. reboot. Wow. From, yeah, oh, is it going to be period or is it going to be updated? No, it's going to be period. It's going to oh, be. Uh, yes. There's a lot of rumors. So I'm basically, going to make Jake Gittis. We're going to do a show about Jake Gittis. Yes. The rumor is there's many rumors about what it's going to be about. It's going to be him starting up his private detective, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, after World War One. Like he's yeah. a World War One veteran and then he yeah. ends up doing the detective thing. Uh, or it's going to be in Damn. between uh, Chinatown and J- and the two Jakes, which or... I actually like the two Jakes. I think it's pretty underrated. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, it's. Um, I, I actually really like the two Jakes. It's closer to Robert Town's vision than it is Polanski's vision. Mm. Uh, but anyway, um, but or it's going to be after the two Jakes. In the, well, it's going to be him in the sixties. I, I I wrote a TV show um, a few years back, which is languishing. Uh, and that's how actually I came to know Andrew Cole Bolgin, who's working with me on, on my other film projects. Um, and it was basically, it was a private eye. And I wanted um, Common to be the lead. And it's about a, an ex, you know, uh, soldier who said in Afghanistan sets up a private I love private eye. I think it's a great genre. And I wanted to do a modern genre, L.A. noir um show and uh, i've written it out i've written the first um season out and what it's about and uh, this one i've got in my back pocket if the other things go i can say oh well hello here's my detective tv show i've got one <laughs> so i'm That's quite fantastic. interested to see, uh, see especially netflix are taking that on you know talking to them at the moment so it's going to be interesting um i was going to ask you another question i'll tell you what sure. else i'm making a tv show of uh, under the skin under the skin, the the yeah. wait, what? Scarlett Johansson film. Like oh, Wilson. the Scarlett Johansson. Sorry, I thought you meant the Under the Skin, the two thousand four um, film with that that features cutting. I don't know why. No. I thought, Is that the reflecting, reflecting skin? Or maybe that? No, no, and the reflecting skin's the um, the. Is it the, the? No, that's a different one. There, there are two Under the Skin films, and one Just, one's with Scarlett Johansson. One's a two thousand four film. Right. Okay. That actually has like, it was controversial at least in Australia, because it's about two cutters. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I do remember that film. I, I think uh, it's actually called Cutters, isn't it? No, I, I don't. I, I don't remember. Anyway, really, Bye-bye. they're making a TV show out of Under the Skin. Yeah. Well, they're all. I mean, you know, all these directors from the past who've got these great properties. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking, here's one. Um, I'm surprised no one's done it, or maybe they have. I actually had a bit of a uh, a light bulb moment actually yesterday. I thought, you know what would be really good to turn into a TV show? Would be the final conflict. 
the something yes yeah and you pick up on adult damien and basically he starts off as like a wall street trader it's a he's a bit american psycho and it turns into like the west wing he actually becomes president i think end of day i think that could be quite interesting yeah we shouldn't be all these ideas I shouldn't be talking about in public. But yeah, I just thought that'd be a really good idea to kind of reboot the Omen project. And instead of concentrating on, you know, that remake was pretty dire. Um, (laughs) But the final conflict in retrospect is, is pretty good, but it's a little bit limited. I think it it comes over a bit like a TV movie. Sam Neill's amazing actually in it. He was great. I mean, I loved Omen too. That was a film me, me and my brothers probably watched a lot on VHS back in the day as kids. Um, the Omen series is great. It's if you actually think about it, in how trilogies, franchise trilogies, the third one kind of peters out. That's not talked about. It's the first one's talked about as a great classic, which it is. It's, it's brilliant. Um, and funny enough, Kurt Pickles turned down the role that went to Gregory Peck little side note there. Um, I don't don't think, I've heard that before, and I don't think Kirk Douglas would have this sort of, he doesn't have the regal charm that sort of matches, that matches the aesthetic of the Omen. You needed a what, you needed kind of American blue blood wasp to play uh, Thorn. I can't remember what the first name was. He's too too roguish, I think. Huh? He's too roguish. Kirk's too ethnic. He's too ethnic. He won the, won the board. You, <laughs> need, you, need, you needed that kind of... He came from the Bush family, you know, yeah. or he was a Rockefeller. You know, he was born into that world. Kirk Douglas is a ragman's son. I'm a massive Kirk Douglas fan as well. It's the name of his biography, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, anyway... Um, that sounds really interesting. Uh, do you know what it's going to be about, the Under the Skin TV show? No, not at all. I just it, it popped up on IndieWire last week. I thought, oh, okay, interesting. The thing is, like with all these adaptations of like TV shows like this, they, they adapted the, uh, I mean, mainly for name recognition, they adapted the book Night Flyers by um, George R. R. Martin. And as you and I know, there's a 1980s horror film, which is an adaptation of the short story by George Martin. That's right, yeah. Liars, which is a really cheesy 80s horror film. Yeah. And they they adapted, basically, it has very little resemblance to the short story. And I think what they do a lot of these times is they just, they do almost like what Robert Altman does. They just make whatever the hell they want, make mm. it an engaging, interesting story, and mm. keep similar, keep vague elements that tie it to the original properties so that they can, you know, cash they in on its title and what, what it is it's ip you know they get an ip it's like where it's been done very 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 well was hannibal it was a tv show hannibal with mads mickelson playing hannibal lecter yeah I and mean, yeah that was that that i think is the art is the definitive um hannibal lecter you know uh again i think silence of Lambs is fantastic but i never loved um anthony hopkins hannibal i love brian cox in Manhunter, which mm. was Michael Mann's version of um, Red Dragon, the original Hannibal Lecter novel, because uh, he played him with such quiet, realistic menace. Um, Hopkins came over like it was in pantomime, 
great and chilling at times, but yeah. it was very, it was very baroque and very big, you know. And and for me, I I just felt it wasn't, it it was here's the villain, whereas yeah. Brian Cox played him as literally scary. He's a psychopath well, you, and well, intelligent. In the original book, in the original Red Dragon book, he's a he is compared to Ted Bundy, a man who. You know, stalk, he would literally like uh, Hannibal Lecter would literally stalk co-eds in uh, sororities and cut them up with linoleum knives. Yeah, you can't imagine. Wrong. You can't imagine. You know, Anthony Hopkins doing that. No, you couldn't imagine Mads, Mik- Mads Mikkelsen. Their their kind of slants. Exactly, but that's, was, that's he was public, a uh, that's he, a public consciousness altering what we know of a pop culture icon. Right. Which is it was an interesting thing, isn't it? How yeah. he, you know, it's it's the same with Darth Vader. Any of these kind of baddies we grew up with, who were initially very ba- bad, become almost antiheroes. And yeah. Hollywood helped doing that with an antihero. The the need redemption. The need a. I, I had a, a script critiqued not long ago, and they said the baddies had no redemptive arc. And I said, really. Why? Good. <laughs> I don't. I, I, I like you know someone to be bad because they are bad and whatever. But no one's bad, you know. Everyone's the hero of their own story. Exactly. So it, it's a very interesting way how you play with characters. I, I, I'm you know as I, I keep writing and I keep practicing and it's very interesting how you can just shift things. Mm. Uh, you know, I hate to dilute. You know baddies in, 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 in films. I, I like them to be bad. Even though I love what they did with Mads Mikkelsen, he, he, he's kind of like almost the ultimate critique of bad taste and that's what <laughs> drives him to eat people. It's almost yeah. like this, food, he's the top of the food chain, which is a very interesting take and it works really well and you can't help but admire him. But again, it's a very different take on the previous Hannibal Lecter's. Well, what we expected from True Detective season two is what we got in Hannibal season one. Mm-hmm. It's that's that sort of interesting minimal style in terms of aesthetic, but also mm-hmm. that sort of that sort of um, transcendental nature, this sort of transcendental uh, feeling that the this ethereal kind of control that the villain has over the story is mm-hmm. kind of what we expected from. Mm-hmm from True Detective Season 2 and, yeah. you know, this sort of supernatural folk horror tale. Sure. Anyway. Well, that's it. We, t- we, t- we turn our, our, horror, our horror films into fairy tales as opposed to being horror films. I mean, when's the last time you were really scared by a horror film? I can't remember. But the thing is, horror films, in horror films do get made. You know, you've got Bloomhouse doing stuff. Mm. They're very good at what they do. And really smart how they make their films. Well, I can't remember the last time I was really scared by a horror film. I mean, I don't watch yeah. that many. I do like the horror genre. It'd be interesting to play in that. Yeah. And, you know, again, going back to before we started taping, again, we always end up talking about The Exorcist 3, or I do. Oh, <laughs> uh, The Exorcist. It's <laughs> uh, a as, great as, film. Yeah, I know. But they, for me, are just so brilliant, you know. Uh, something about them just again i think the problem is with horror films being made now they're made to be horror films rather than films that are horrific and the exorcist is a a film before it's a horror film 
Yeah, and, and I think that's yeah, the difference. You know, exactly. for like you and me, we were very much, for lack of a better word, cinephiles and very much, you know, real obsessive. Listen, the last thing that scared me was I stumbled upon this channel on YouTube called uh, called uh, Channel Fifty Eight or something like that, or Local yeah. Fifty Eight. And basically, what it is is the first video. I mean, there's some vague narrative about how the moon is actually a living creature that's slowly taking, exuding its control over the world. But the very first um, uh, video is uh, it's uh, like a, a copy of what happened at 3 a.m. on this channel that the out and bumble fuck America about how uh, someone was recording at 3 a.m. and somehow. The this tape plays from the 1960s. That's sort of like a what if scenario. Right. Uh, if the Reds took over America, that what happened is this this tape would play from uh, you know orders of the president be like play this tape in every local station that you can get out, and it basically depicts this uh, this instruction set of instructions being played out in front of you. That what you have to do is you take every American citizen. We have, we have lost control of America. We can't let the enemy uh, take, out, take control of our, our, uh, our bodies and our souls. So take the nearest uh, gun that you have and stick it in your mouth and follow these instructions. Go out in the lawn, pull the trigger, lie down feet first. That's right. And then all of a sudden it cuts back. And it's like, oh, that was actually a hoax. And that genuinely terrified me. Which the is rest- kind of, it's a, it's a riff on War of the Worlds, Awesome Wells radio show. Yes, yeah, it's a modern day riff. And I think uh, what makes it modern is that it is featured on YouTube, even though this has happened in the past or something. Great idea. It's a great yeah. idea. But the actual narrative that the rest of the videos follow is that uh, it abandons the first video, right? Uh, so to pretend that that didn't happen. But the rest of the videos are patterned on similar ideas uh, that there is a video. Someone is breaking into the station at 3 a.m. And yeah. all of these tapes that you're not supposed to see, they're putting on and they're infiltrating and showing you that the world is actually uh, uh, under some sort of supernatural control. And it gets progressively more and more creepy. And it follows this narrative uh, that the moon has something to do with exerting influence on the world. And um, one of the creepiest features, uh, features uh, like, a, like a, uh, this, um, this instruction that tells you to go outside and scream, scream, and scream as loud as you can. And then it cuts to this live feed outside. And then you hear right. the screams of thousands of people in the middle of the night in the woods. It's yeah. really creepy. Anyway, but I'll send you the link, actually. Yeah, please I want to get your opinion on it. So, actually, we can talk about it next time. Right. No, definitely for that. Because, yeah, you as a, a filmmaker, um, a proper filmmaker, uh, would be, I'd like to know your, what impact it has on you as well. Yeah, so that's, you know, a great horror film, I think, where great horror films work is they have a great premise. It can't be just about gore or a guy jump scares and that's exactly. where a lot what of horror films, horror films now, work for you which goes back to what i was saying about exorcists sorry to repeat myself is the fact no, that no, no. when you go out and make a film which is a a narrative and it's, it's a story and it's, mm. you know, it's very much a piece of cinema and then it just so happens to fall into the um 
the horror genre. It's like, you know, no one's done a superhero film yet, which actually is, or maybe they did Brightburn, I think was an attempt at that, um, to do kind of a proper horror film. How about a superhero that's a serial killer? No one's done that yet. Can you imagine? Could be interesting. But again, I guess that just turns into like a mutant kind of, X-Men type thing. I don't know. It's, it's, it, but I like the idea of... S- Stop giving away all your good ideas on, on the podcast. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Shut up, Darren. Um, right, so uh, Downhill Racer. Yeah, Downhill Racer, which was a pick for you, um, yeah. which I think was a very good idea because I, um, I, I haven't seen this film in a while. And when I did see it, I saw it on video which is a mistake. I think this film needed to be seen in a proper format, which thankfully we had access to the Criterion Remastered Edition. Yeah. I guess, why did you pick this film? And what actually, what is it about? Because Downhill Racer is quite a, an interesting documentarian, almost documentarian look at downhill racing. Literally, it's the plots in the title. But what, what happens in the film? Well, it's, good question. It's, it's got Robert Redford in. Mm-hmm. And a very early um, uh, role for Gene Hackman. Um, Robert Redford plays a guy, a guy called David Chabalet. Chabalet? Chabalet, Ch- no, yeah. Chaplin, isn't it? It's, it's, Chap- it's, it's, C- it's C-H-A-P-P-L-E-T. Who's an absolute arrogant prick, but a very talented skier. And um, the burgeoning US team, ski team, uh, loses one of their uh, team members to an, an accident. He's laid up in hospital, so he gets drafted in on the build-up to the Olympics. And it's basically about this kind of guy from Idaho, I think, Denver, Colorado, around there. You know, Nebraska. He's you know, he's blonde, blue-eyed kind of. Yeah, it was Denver, Colorado. I remember the sign. Kind mm-hmm. of dude who's also all of a sudden finds himself in a very. And he comes from like. A, pure farmland you know yes uh, um finds himself in what i would perceive in 19 what year is it i forget what year it is 1969 the film 1969. Came out. so late 60s sophisticated europe which is very jet set mm. and all i you get the impression that the team's made up of very wealthy guys from wealthy kind of moneyed families who are sportsmen and he comes from he, you know he's the poor kid done good who wants to be a champion and he it, it's even though it's a film about skiing it's not about a film about skiing i, I see it's about a film about class as bad as anything it's about a kid who kid you know robert redford um very much in brad pitt mode or you know you can see why brad pitt was like almost the heir apparent robert redford in this film yes um they just look alike even got very similar acting styles yeah uh, you see him coming into this very kind of jet set euro trash kind of world of high-end skiing and mm-hmm. he's got a chip on his shoulder coming from the background he has to kind of integrate and win i think he's trying to prove a point and, and i think that's what the sub subtext of the film is it's, it's very much a class film and um disguised as a sports film and the film itself is done in this very heightened uh documentarian style which is I think it, the film's a very good camp companion piece to something like Stephen Queen's Le Mans, which yes. is done in the yeah. where they combine, uh, combine real race footage with stage footage and kind of 
smashing yeah. together. It, it works seamlessly. The editing on this film is superb, as well as the sound design, which was um, the guy, a guy who worked on all the Ken Loach, early Ken Loach movies, um, and uh, incredible. The sound design is just incredible. I think that's what I loved about the film when I first saw it back in the day was this opening sequence with the freeze frames and this tick, 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 tick. I'm kind of a little bit obsessed by sound design as any director should be, but it, it, it here it's very, very, very well done. And it's almost a star of the film. Um, the film's great. It, it's again, talking about Le Mans, Steve McQueen, Le Mans. I think again, one of my other passions are vintage Porsches. I love vintage Porsches and they've both got them in. And this one's got a yellow one. <laughs> I think, I don't know. It's just beautiful looking film as well. Shot superbly. It's got a great score. Redford is brilliant and Redford doesn't get enough credit. He was never scared to, um, you know, not be the matinee idol, which I think people expected him to be. I mean, if you look at mm. the other Michael Ritchie film, Michael Ritchie and him were great together. Um, Michael Ritchie is a very underrated director uh, coming out. He's not quite a 70s brat and he's not quite part of the 60s film system. Mm. He's somewhere between the falls. And he, um, he did some great, 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 great films, um, you know, especially... The candidate with with um, with uh, with uh, uh, Robert Redford, and uh, he also did a film which I really love called um, Prime Cut with uh, kind of linked to that Gene, Gene Hackman and um, Gene Hackman and um, Lee Marvin. Lee Marvin, yeah. which I think is a very good film. Yeah, that is probably my favourite Michael Ritchie. But yeah, yeah, and you know. Um, Robert Redford, I actually really like as an actor. I really loved all the films he did. I mean, there's another film he did with um, uh, Michael J. Pollard, which not many people know, called Little Faust and Big Harley. Haley, Halsey. Uh, which is, a, which is a, a motorcycle, a motocross kind of film. Saying, it was you Robert know, Redford's what? take on Easy Rider. And apparently that- the screenplay is one of the best, uh, first, is one of the be- best, uh, one of the best scripts ever written. And then they got to the filmmaking stage and then they had to compromise so much that it ended up being this, uh, this sort of, uh, almost thunderbolt and lightfoot sort of yeah. comedy of errors. But apparently the original script is actually one of the best to ever written. It's a really good film. It doesn't have a DVD or uh, any release. You can I get have a Blu-ray. I don't know how, can you? I don't know how great. Yeah. Yeah. You can get but it. It's on... never been remastered. It needs a remastering. I think. Yeah. It, it's, Really good film. Michael J. Pollard, who I think died last year, is fabulous uh, in it. And, and Robert Repper's great in it. Again, he's he was never scared to kind of lean into being a bit of a, a prick. As a, a, he wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't precious. No, no. He, which a lot of their stars were at that period. He, he and he doesn't get enough credit. I mean, you know, he was he's he's a, such an important figurehead in cinema. I mean, you know, he championed. You know, indie cinema, Sundance, came out of Robert Redford. Well, the thing is, it's like this. There's, I remember reading like an essay or something on the impact of of uh, Robert Redford's look, uh, how how good looking he is, and he resented the fact that he was taken as a pretty boy from Hollywood, and he tried all these different things, like you know, as you pointed out, act like a prick in a lot, take characters who act like pricks in order mm-hmm. to 
show that he was a proper actor and not mm. that he was just a pretty face. Well, but I think Brad Pitt had the same problem as well, you know, initially. Yeah, I, I think he's still got the same problem. I don't think he's... I don't know. Brad Pitt's not like an actor, but he's, he's not good at sort of blending into the story as well as, like, Daniel Day-Lewis. No, no. Well, Daniel Day-Lewis, is, he was an anomaly. Not many come along like him. I still think he's probably, as an actor goes, probably the greatest actor. I mean, better than, you know, people like, dare I say it, Brando and Olivier, who, you know, people hold up in very high esteem. Uh, I think Lewis is definitely one of the greatest actors that ever lived. You know, he, yeah, yeah, he, he is. He become different people. They, he wasn't riffing on the variation of his own personality. Um, but going back to Downhill Racer, I, it's, yes. I mean, what's your take on it? I, I, I think it... Uh, when we talked about what should we do this week, and I just thought, I don't know why it jumped into my head. I think it's a film again, which I'd been meaning to look at again. And there's something about it, which it's not the most perfect film. It's not like incredible, but it's a very, very, very good film. And it's, it's unusual. Well, it's as polished as I expected it to be. I expected it to be quite a rough sort of feeling film. In terms oh, of editing and sound well. design, that's what I like about it. Actually. Well, it comes from—I mean, just from from its placement in it, in cinematic history, it's a new Hollywood film, and it comes after Easy Rider. So mm. naturally, they're going to take that sort of aesthetic capability and apply yeah. it. Essentially, a story that is, you know, very upbeat. It's you know the 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 the. It's basically the story of Rocky, except in Rocky, he doesn't win. It's a you know a split decision almost, and then he's. Then he loses, but the point is he earned to get where he was. Yeah. Downhill racer, he does win. And what I found really interesting was, and I didn't know this from watching it, later on I found out uh, actually watching a documentary that apparently Sylvester Stallone is a background expert. Yeah, he's in the restaurant. And it, it must, this film must have had a huge influence on Rocky. It must have. Because the film not only looks and sounds like Rocky aesthetically, but it almost follows the same story beats. Interesting. Except, yeah. right. except, you know, uh, the comment on class is that uh, he's not trying to ignore his his roots. He, that's that's not even part of the narrative. I mean, they're focusing more on a hierarchical structure, as you pointed out in in Downhill Racer, and I think that comes from Redford. That comes from the fact that he did come from pretty humble background, but then mm-hmm. made made it to the upper echelons. And there's actually a really famous story about um, how um, Robert Redford was uh, up for the part of the Dustin Hoffman part of, in um, The Graduate. That's right, yeah. And the reason why he didn't get the job was because he didn't know what it was like to get turned down by a woman. Yeah, <laughs> Dustin Hoffman got the job, apparently. Uh, they were both they were both head in head. They were both neck and neck. But apparently, yeah, Dustin Hoffman got the role because – He'd get rejected all the time based on his looks. Yeah, sure. And Robert Redford didn't have that. And he still hasn't. He, I would argue that it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, oh, yeah, that's it. William Goldman said, um, uh, Stephen Fry asked what William Goldman, what it was like to, to work with Robert Redford. And William Goldman said, how would you be if you, for your entire life, you'd never heard the word no? And I, I think, think it's like that, 80, isn't he? he? He was like, 
him and Warren Beatty had a similar sort of kind of, um, they were perceived very, very similar. Exactly. Now, the difference between Warren Beatty and Robert Redford is that Warren Beatty comes from an upper class background, Robert Redford, humble backgrounds, if you, yeah. if you will. Uh, Downhill Racer is arguably his story. In fact, almost every story that he's in is his story. When he ends up, uh, when Warren Beatty ends up, uh, uh, you know, Warren Beatty, he, throughout his entire career, uh, was known for the indecision. He he, never, he very rarely made decisions, um, whereas Robert Redford would be making decisions all the time. He was quite pragmatic. That yes. comes from his humble background. That comes from his working class background. Yeah, that's someone who Warren needs to, Beatty, you know. As I pointed out, was the opposite. He he didn't he did he had all the, everything done for him. So he didn't know what it was like to make decisions, let alone hear the word no. Mm. And that makes them interesting counterparts. Uh, but nonetheless, Downhill Racer, I think, um, encapsulates the period better than most post-Easy uh, Rider New Hollywood films. Yeah, also, I'll tell you what must have been quite interesting for people, is mm-hmm. if you think of the period it came out, I don't think people in America necessarily travelled to Europe, and certainly that, those areas of Europe. That well, kind that's of- why the documentary style works. Because it almost feature, it almost seems like a travelogue. As you pointed out earlier, this film uh, exemplifies the jet set in a way that no other film did pre- previously, and that is with o- an almost objective uh, point of view. Now, that being said, there's a lot of subjective camera work in it, but yes. nonetheless, it's it's almost like because it's subjective from the point of view of an outsider, it is objective to the, to the, uh, to the locale. So when you see these, you know, uh, these airports, these, uh, you know, bed and breakfast hotels, uh, these ski slope, they're from his point of view and they're fucking terrifying sometimes. I mean, the, the I mean, classic one shot towards the end where, uh, Robert Redford is looking down at the ski at the ski slope when he's at the top of it and he's looking around at this fisheye lens uh point of view of his and it's just like a second this shot and it just it it's as vertigo inducing as looking out of a plane you know yeah. it's it's the most effective shot in the film and that exemplifies the point of view aspect of the film to me at least well, it's funny you should say that my, my two takings on that are there's two scenes and the yeah. much smaller kind of throwaway scenes. Mm-hmm. And it's one at the beginning when he arrives at the hotel after he checks in with DK, who's his, um, who he shares the room with. And they go, he goes into the bathroom and he's looking around. He has a glass of water, drink mm-hmm. of water. And he's looking at the bidet next to the toilet. And DK goes, you know what that is? And he obviously has not a clue what that is. And he goes, yeah, shh sure <laughs> walks out uh, which i thought was very i think summed up the film really of who the character was and secondly was his relationship with this very wealthy jet set swedish girl played by camilla's camilla, uh, camilla Spav, and who ironically was robert evans producer of chinatown's first wife really yeah, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, uh, she was in the film America 3000. That's right, yeah. <laughs> she, she, she plays this you know, very wealthy Eurotrash um, yeah. girl who obviously 
is I, I get I get the impression that he'd met quite a few as he was becoming you know, more successful and more famous and more international. Uh, he, she was an archetypal girl he met, yeah. uh, you know, and the fact that you know he'd obviously fallen for her, and she was she, she he was just her plaything for the season. You know, she was a bit of a she was a market groupie for skiers, and the fact that. Um, you know, he'd been waiting around to see her over Christmas, stayed uh, out there and uh, wherever they were. Uh, and she'd gone back to wherever she came from. And, you know, he bumps into her again. She's got a Christmas present. He thinks, oh, okay, right. And she just goes off on, you know, talking about things like uh, incredible family and Christmas and mm. how they had fake snow in the in in the windows and presents and silly mm. presents because they're so wealthy that they don't really buy presents for each other. And the scene prior, to, you know, a couple of scenes prior to that, he'd been home to the farm where him and his father hardly didn't know how to communicate. And you know, he borrowed the old Chevy and hooked up with his old high school sweetheart, and it was all very, um, you know, very uh, you know, small town Americana. Which again, beautifully shot, actually, and that real that scene where she gives him the gloves and just witters on about her Christmas, totally removed from his um, world, and he just slams his hand onto the horn of the Porsche and says, "You know, stop! I, I, I get who you are now, you know." And then walks off, and I thought that's a great scene, mm. great scene, so much done with so little. That was really good. Did you notice um, another? As we uh, you pointed out earlier, the uh, Michael Ritchie directed the film Prime Cut, which also starred Gene Hackman. I thought this was an interesting thing that I picked up on. I don't think anyone else has. Um, Gene Hackman's character's name is a feminine name in this film, Claire. You know, and in Prime, in Prime Cut, Cut, he's got a, his name is Mary Bell. Mary Bell. That's it. Yeah, it's <laughs> both yeah. both films. He has a very feminine name. Interesting. Well, funny enough, because we haven't spoke about Hackman. Hack, this is maybe a couple of years before French Connection, which made Hackman a star. Yeah. Um, he's great in this. He's absolutely great. He, I mean, his role isn't very big, but whatever scene he's in, he absolutely dominates it. And I noticed watching it um, last night, the film, no one actually really converses in has a conversation where there's two sides to a conversation. People present dialogue and then people answer their dialogue with a dialogue which is totally separate from the conversation. So there's no back and forth. It's I just people. Yeah, and, and, and the dialogue's very terse. I mean, there's one great scene where, you know, Robert Redford, after um, I think his second or premier first race, he crashes and they're sat in this like little cafe. And with Gene Hackman and he goes you know if I'd, Robert Redford was complaining because he saw himself as a superstar he, he needed to be in the top 10 to win this film and he because it was early on in the race team he was given a placing of 88 and by that point the snow has been so worn down you're just in rivets you know it's very hard to get any traction any speed because you just it's been you know thoroughly raced already mm. and he's complaining to Gene Hackman he's saying you know if I'd had even five places earlier, I could have won that race. Won that race. And Gene Hackman says, no, 
It wasn't because it was five places early you would have won it. It's because you just weren't good enough. And that is a really fantastic mm. um, acting. I mean, Gene Hackman all the way through it is great. He, he's so kind of um, uh, reserved and in control and actually really a decent chap. And he's going, I've got this hot dog here, this hot shot, and I'm going to tell you, stop it. You're no good for the team, which is a line. He's a great, he's a great skier, but he's not a team player, which again is a great trope of, of cinema. You know, that, that guy who is, you know, he's arrogant, he's brilliant, and he needs to be broken before he becomes, you know, decent, and then he becomes a winner. Yeah. yeah. Hackman played that role, actually a similar role, in a film that he did, I think, a couple of years earlier called The Gypsy Moths, which is about uh, skydiving. I've seen that. It's yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Frankenheimer film. Um, it's it's sort of this basically the same plot where you know you got this hot. Oh, actually, I have. I have. Yeah, it's basically about skydiving. It's just yeah. replace skydiving and skiing, and basically the the plot is there. So, yeah. um, but Gene Hackman, I, I remember hearing that throughout his entire career, unlike basically almost any other actor regardless of greatness or stature gene Hackman yeah. seems to be the only male actor I, sh- I should say the only great male actor to not sort of alter his appearance in any film whereas al pacino might put on a fake nose or you know rob de niro might shave his hair or put on a lot of weight even marlon brando would put would don lots of makeup and alter his uh, appearance for any for for a lot of roles, mm-hmm. but Gene Hackman, the most he's ever done is put on glasses and put on a mustache. Yeah, it's always him. It seems. But I, I like that about him. I mean, you know, even in films like Scarecrow, which is a great film, mm-hmm. uh, with Pacino, you know, the thing is with I think Gene Hackman is he became a star quite late on. So Gene Hackman's always looked the same age. You know, if you look at maybe a latter latter day film of um, Hackman, which is something like Get Shorty, yes. or even The Given, he doesn't look that different from when he was in this film or The French Connection. Yeah, he's always people... looked the same, and I quite like that. He, he he's a great. He was a. I mean, he's retired now, and you know, he's ninety. Actually. And he's writing. He's writing westerns. Yeah, he writes well, western yeah. novels. You got you got you got to respect these actors who are so in control of themselves where they go, you know, fuck ego. I'm at a certain age. Who wants to watch me again play another character? Yeah, I've done it. I've done it. I'm going to retire. I'm going to enjoy my life. And I'm going to get up on the morning and water the garden, whatever you do. And you've got respect, mate. What Jack Nicholson said, um, uh, you know, the comedian Louis C.K., he did this series called Horace and Pete. No. It's basically a, a sitcom uh, that is a, a straight drama. It's a shot with three cameras, but it's a straight drama with no laugh track. And it's right. got, and it stars him, uh, Louis C.K. Yeah. Uh, um, stars Louis C.K., Steve Buscemi, Alan Alder, uh, Edie Falco, all these yeah. great New York actors and stuff like that. And yeah. uh, there's there's uh, uh, domestic. It's about domestic abuse. It's about uh, domestic rape. Um, it's about, there's nothing funny in it, but it's shot like a three camera. It's, it's weird. Anyway, um, originally for the Alan Alder role, uh, 
uh, so it's basically set in a in a bar called Horace and Pete's. Uh, right. The patriarch is played by Alan Alda, and he's an abusive uh, prick. Originally, um, uh, Louis C.K. wanted uh, Jack Nicholson to play the part, and he right. actually act, he contacted Jack Nicholson somehow, and Jack Nicholson said uh, uh, Jack Nicholson called Louis C.K. up one day, and he's and Louis C.K. goes. So why don't you want to do this part? After all this lobbying, he sort of comes and just says it. Says, why don't you want to do this part? And Jack Nicholson says, uh, said, uh, do you know what I did today, Louis? I sat down under a tree and I read a book. And that's it. <laughs> that's all he said to him. And that's Listen, all he needed you know, to hear. It's not a case of, you know, it's, they have, I think, I think that partly, I mean, I think they don't want to see themselves up there at a certain age. Yeah, you know? like um, like when you think about Burgess Meredith, when he yeah. was really, or William Hickey, you know, these Burgess Meredith, William Hickey, both uh, actors who may got famous in their way later in their lives when they should yeah. have. And as you pointed out, they retain that sort of look and that sort of style. They really couldn't progress from there. They they were running out of steam. Now, William Hickey and Burgess Meredith and all those other actors who, uh, James Coburn, you know, who towards the end of their lives started to wind down. And you could see them winding down on film, picking films like Snow Dogs or, you know, uh, National Lampoon's Bogus Beach Party. You know, and it was getting worse and worse, and their reputation was getting worse and worse. Robert De Niro it's actually. Legacy they want to kind of uphold as well, I think, after a certain time. I, go, exactly. you know, I, I actually heard it really well summed up by David Fincher, funny enough, from the director's point of view. He said, you know, when I'm, you know, on my deathbed, I want to look to the side of the bed. And he said this quite a few years ago. He said, I want to see a stack of DVDs or Blu rays and go, you know, I did well. And it's like Tarantino, you know, to bring it up to date, saying, you know, I want to quit after my next film. I'm going to have a legacy of 10 great films where I think I've really been firing on full cylinders mm. instead of, you know, being a bit limp, as it were. The thing, the difference between Tarantino and, uh, so I know this is a bit of a digression from Dan Horizon, but no. the, the, the difference between Tarantino and Fincher is that I think Fincher is going to die in the director's chair. Yeah, because I, I actually think Fincher is as much an amazing director. He's a bit like Ridley Scott. Yeah. Very businesslike. It's a business and it's a business they're very, very, very good at and they know how to it's all business. Whereas but they still get artistic satisfaction from it, otherwise yeah, they won't do so it. So it's an interesting um proposal to yeah. be the director. Do you want to be the auteur type director where it takes a long time between projects to get them up and running and get the money to do them? Or do you want to be someone who is able to take a script that's already looking for a, someone to helm it and run with it mm. and then have enough power to be infused with your own sensibilities and work and enjoy your life and do what you want to do and be a director instead of someone that, you know, um, has to fight tooth and nail and has doors slammed in your face and take forever to get the next project off the ground. And I have to admit, I think I'd rather be the former. 
I'd like to think I'd why is that the latter but because I like working and I like yeah. not waiting around and I want to crack on and I, I feel that the more you work the better you can be and I think there's something to be said about being listen to Ridley Scott talk about making films in his commentaries is being someone who is you know once it's a green light you become almost workmanlike it's like someone who has a desk job nine to five they get up get dressed get on the tube go to work boom come home next day do the same and that doesn't take away from the fact that everything is at the utmost you know thought about and has such a high-end creative artistic and um infusion from ridley which you know he's a he's a he's a master craftsman yes you know he is a master craftsman but he's also a commercials director you know it's in his dna and that's still there and that's why he wasn't able to um do a film a year and he, he was doing that but i think it almost it kind of destroyed his legacy a little bit because there's quite a few duds in that. But at the same time, he he offsets that by making a lot of money. Yeah, didn't doesn't he own a studio or something like that? He has a, he has RSA here in the US, which is um, basically was what he created um, to direct commercials with his brother Tony back in the day, and oh. they were the, they're still a very big production company for commercials. Um, I walk past their offices many, many, many times. And you can just see into the window slightly and it's always whatever the latest release by RSA, mainly Ridley's films. There's a poster and reception. What, sorry, just, what does RSA stand for? Ridley Scott Associates. Okay, sorry. But in those days, it was very trendy to call your production company after the, the main director's name. Um, you know, And then as that became a little bit old-fashioned, it became known as RSA. It was probably Ridley Scott Films initially, and then it became Ridley Scott Associates, and then it just became RSA. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, back to Downhill Racer. I think, uh, so, um, uh, I guess, what, what was I going to ask? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I just wanted to point out, even though this film didn't do well financially, uh, it was on the heels of Easy Rider and stuff like that, mm-hmm. this film actually was influential and uh quite immediately so in canada the film actually did play very well i think because they uh did glean to the i guess the more um the more the the, the colder acclimatization of the film um mm-hmm. and they did sort of they, they already come from that sort of uh, sporting background of skiing and stuff like that but the film did actually spawn a ripoff a roger corman-esque ripoff called mm-hmm. the ski bum Starring Zalman King. Who went on to write Nine and a Half Weeks and direct Wild Orchid with Mickey Rourke. Exactly, yeah. And yeah. he was in he, he was in Blue Sunshine is probably what I That's right, yeah. He was in Blue Sunshine. Which is uh Blue Sunshine if you get the channel. We should we should review it actually. In the I future. have it on DVD actually. Do you have the uh, the the Synapse film, uh the version yes. with uh, yeah. the soundtrack? I think so. It's amazing soundtrack. You know, uh, you know how par- 70s paranoid thrillers are a genre, and you've got films like The Parallax View and Clute. Yeah. And, and all. Anyway. Three Days of the Condor. Three Days of the Condor, yeah. Blue Sunshine should be up there, I think, personally. Should be it's up probably, in the top ten. probably a film ripe for remake. Yes, yeah. Um, actually, Three Days of the Condor is remade for television, I just found out the other day. What, it's going to be made into a TV show? It is made. 
it's available on Netflix or Stan or whatever it is. It's available now. You can watch the remake. Who's in it? I don't know. I, I don't know. There's some some young guff who looks like every other young guff who's starring in all of these things like Ansel Elgort or you know you know those types you know those with the with, with the neat hair. <laughs> Three days at the Condor. Um, right. Uh, I think it's just called Three Days or something like that. Something. Ah, that's that rings a bell. Three Days at the Condor. I need to revisit. I. I want to love it, but I don't quite love it. I don't know what it is. I think it it, it, it drags a lot. I think the opening's great. Uh, and it has a great scene at the end with Max von Sydow, who passed away recently. He was yeah, like, one day you'll, you'll walk up and you'll be you'll feel something on the back of your neck or something. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's because it's a little bit dated. Uh, but whereas the parallax view for me still holds up really well really well i love the power and again um talking about downhill racer what i like about parallax view as much as anything is the soundtrack by michael small uh yeah who is a great unsung hero of very much 1970s paranoid thrillers and he did clue as well which is is, uh, great soundtrack well they it's such a great soundtrack that they they used clips of it for this new tv series with julia roberts called homecoming oh really yeah I was, I was watching the second episode and in the opening credits you hear the opening music from clute yeah well people people should look at michael it's michael smalls or michael small i can't remember but um yeah his soundtrack for clute is a classic especially a track called golf Tharp's fantasy um which is on the album and that's beautiful i've got that on my uh on my on my playlist, I listen to a lot. It's mm-hmm. quite good. It's really good. Oh, um, the soundtrack to Downhill Racer, the the opening, the opening kind of uh, score is very reminiscent. And it's not by Michael Smalls. I, I kind of checked that up. And I thought, oh, it's not Michael Smalls. It sounds like it, it has that conspiracy kind of um, tone that you yeah. you heard in Parallax View and and uh, Clue, and it's not. But it works really well. It's got a cold, austere, slightly sinister feel, and with a very sharp editing style with the freeze frames, it's beautiful. And I'll tell you something in my notes looking at it, mm-hmm. so I'll forget, and I'll go, oh, I wish I spoke about that, is the one thing I miss very much so is opening titles in films. And I love the way they combine the opening titles with that opening sequence and the score. I think it's such a really... It tells you everything about the world and the tone of the film and the feel and the freeze frame and that great, uh, there's some step printing in there, which I'm not a fan of, but it works really well. What's step um, printing? It's that kind of slightly staccato um, slow motion. Oh, okay. Where they slow down, where they don't actually shoot the frame rate, the correct, the correct frame rate for slow motion. They slow it down later. Yeah. Yeah. It's a post-production uh, yeah, yeah. thing, which yeah. I'm not a fan of but it, it, it works really well in just little smidgens um and the freeze it's a really it's such a well edited film that's something i really took away from viewing it last night yeah the well. editing the the techniques of the film are great the, see the problem with the film that i had was the music yeah a, a lot of the music post the opening sequence isn't great because i that's something i i noticed as well because i thought oh 
I forgot the music's really good in this, watching the opening sequence. And then mm. after I went, mm, nothing really there. And the guy who composed it, is, um, I've never really, I've looked him up and I can't really find much. And his back catalogue isn't great. So Kenyon Holmes, his name is. Yeah, he must be a friend of the director. <laughs> Maybe. Whoever, they couldn't get someone. Or they were trying to get Michael Smalls and he wasn't available. And they say, well, can you try and rip him off a little bit? Yeah, yeah. It was the, the main problem I had with with the, with the soundtrack was this this tinny sort of uh, trumpet sounds, which made it sound like a made for TV movie, and mm. definitely drew it back. And the the main problem with it is, it sounds like a made for TV movie. It that's the only thing that dates the film, even though it's shot, and the fashions are like. Uh, from the 60s and it's shot in like you know places that still you know you could smoke in and etc yeah. etc it's that doesn't date the film because it's because of its stylistic uh, because mm-hmm. of its pacing i think mainly more than anything yeah. it's it's like a it's like the man who fell to earth which i've been doing some kind of notes on for something and i was listening to the soundtrack and there's some really great minimalist almost Brian Eno-esque tracks on there. And then you've yeah. got the John Phillips stuff, which is that kind of very, yeah, which is, it, it, I, I was reading the history about that soundtrack. You know, Bowie was originally going to do it, but he was going through his milk, uh, drinking milk and heroin stage. And it didn't really make quite the right professional um, attitude to record the soundtrack in the time they had. And John Phillips was drafted in and he was brought to London and he just parted. And I think he just went in and goes, I've got these tracks which I haven't used on any of my albums and made it fit the film. And it's all that kind of slightly honky-tonk kind of Nashville-esque kind of music which (laughs) doesn't really travel outside America. America. You know, it's very, it dates the film terribly. But some of the, that original piece of score at the beginning of the film is great. Yeah, I agree. Um, do you have any recommendations of films that might, uh, people who do check out this film because of this review? Le Mans. I, I would, Le Mans? I'd watch this as a companion piece to Steve McQueen's Le Mans. And Rocky, the original Rocky, which is a very different beast to anything that followed. Um, they became more and more Saturday more morning cartoon uh from three onwards two's kind of part two of the original rocky yeah uh, but you know with studio notes whereas rocky one was a very low budget under the radar almost on the waterfront-esque take on the boxing genre and, well he loses uh, at the end as we know yeah he loses you know and it, it it's a very gritty kind of almost raggedy kind of film which is beautiful which is you know it's very much quintessential 70s but unfortunately it's been hijacked by the by people's recollections of rocky four or five whatever well i think it's stylistically rocky two and rocky one are so similar that people confuse the two because at the end of rocky two he does win Mm. yeah very much so but le mans steve mcquinn's le mans which again was a film which um i think is definitely um in the same wheelhouse as Downhill Racer. Absolutely. And it, it's a great, I actually rewatched that um, earlier on this year. And I, I do, it's funny, it was a film that totally flopped and, and it isn't a great film, but it has enough for you to really enjoy it and find it. The racing scenes are fantastic. McQueen is quintessential McQueen. 
in it. Um, again, the characters feel very Euro, which is, it, it's almost like the same, it's happening at the same time as this film. Mm -hmm. It's in the same universe. And again, it's, it, it's shot in that very um, induced documentary style uh, where you can see the combined going to the actual events and cutting, cutting up the footage with staged events and very well cut together. It's got a great soundtrack. And, you know, they're, they're two films. I, it's funny, I'm not a, a big sports film fan, but Le Mans, Rocky, this, yeah. Raging Bull, obviously. I, I definitely put in my top top thirty films all time. Yeah, I think uh, like sports films, especially from the sixties and seventies, showcase a lot of stylistic, uh, great stylistic techniques that are sort of unsung in a lot of cinema. I think they're very influenced by French New Wave cinema. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's especially in terms of editing and, and sound. Um, sure. Uh, I would recommend a film called Pit Stop, which is a Jack Hill film in 1966. I've seen Sorry. that. I've seen that. It's very it, good. It's basically a French New Wave film version of the movie Thunder Alley, starring um, uh, Annette Funicello and uh, Fabian. Basically, it's a it's a an AIP film done like a French New Wave film, and it does match stylistically the uh, the, the 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 techniques of, of downhill race except it's in black and white mm. and uh, it, but because it's low budget it aims for atmospheric um it's atmospherically driven rather than with thunder alley which is event driven mm. um and actually that's that would make an interesting double feature pit stop and thunder alley but pit stop and downhill racer would also make a very good double feature as well yeah yeah pit stop okay. being b film and downhill race being the a film yeah I mean, what's your favourite scenes in the film, Downhill Racer? What's, what? uh, well, my favourite shot is the shot of uh, at the end of the film where Robert Redford is approaching the, the tip of the slope. Uh, mm. But my favourite scene actually is when, and this is a spoiler, when Robert Redford wins at the end, you don't know that he has won the entire race because, or the entire competition because there's one, uh, there's one, racer left and so that moment when he's silent and blocking out all of the trying to block out as much as possible to concentrate on the german uh the german racer who's just after him uh, that moment is really intense and i think mm. very modernistic as well uh, actually very influential in terms of modern films mm -hmm. yeah very much five minutes i could see in almost every sports film <laughs> at every sports film from the 80s and 90s. Uh, yeah. Not so much the 70s, but definitely post-Rocky, I think. Mm -hmm. How about yourself? What about your favourite scene? Like I say, I, 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 there isn't a favourite... I mean, I like the scene with... A few scenes. Between Gene Hackman and Redford, and he says, you just weren't good enough. Uh, I think that's it's really good. Yes. Really good. But yes. what I like about the film, and I think why I've always kind of gone back to it, is... I think the craftsmanship of the film, I love the sound design. I love that cold Euro late sixties feel. It's very luxurious as a film. I mean, it's probably, it was probably a very, you know, for an audience watching it during that period, it was probably very sophisticated as a piece of film, you know, to see this world, 
you know, because uh, it was very glamorous. You know, it's a little bit clinky and now, but something very, very stylish about it. It's a very stylish film. And I think Redford's great in it. He's really good. I, I like the juxtapositions of him going back to uh, Colorado in between seasons. And, mm. you know, a very bleached out kind of farmland world, which is a great contrast to the ice cold European snowscapes of, 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 of the ski of the skiing world. And, you know, the yellow Porsches. And he goes back and he's driving a, his dad's old Chevy you know, that's stuck in a garage. I, I love that contradiction of of these two worlds kind of, you know, meeting up. And, you know, it's, it's a great film. So I really recommend it. It's okay. funny, but when do you watch it? I was watching it and it was like sunshine streaming in, you know. Um, oh, I was watching it late yesterday evening. At night. Yeah, you need to watch it late at night or you've got to watch it on a Sunday, on a rainy Sunday, mm. I think. It's not a film to watch in the when it's warm. I hate <laughs> Sundays. I just wish I could. They could just remove sunshine like it, it's Sunday like a tumor. <laughs> um, anyway, next episode. Uh, I figured. Uh, you know, we'll figure out what we'll do next episode. Yeah, we'll figure it out. We'll work it out as usual. We'll have a thing. Um, we should do something a little bit more comedic, shouldn't we? What do you mean? Oh, do you mean to, like to 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 review? Yeah. Um, or, we should, or maybe we should do something like soundtracks or something that isn't so quintessential a film. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, why don't we... Uh, we'll have a think. Yeah, we'll have a think because that's really interesting. We could almost... Because uh, immediately you said that and I thought, of, well, let's review... Let's talk about a film magazine. But then that's not really the same. But I like the idea of talking about a soundtrack specifically. Or, or soundtracks. Because I think yeah. what we should... Do you have uh, rights issues if you played anything? No. Uh, I, listen, no one's ever caught up on it before, considering that it has to do with fair dealings. But that being said, we're not making any money from this. No. So, uh, like, you know, if I put it on YouTube, yes. But if I put it on iTunes, no. So maybe we could um, we could find... We could pick three tracks each from if any you, film. Above. If we could literally comment on them, I think the thing is two descriptive words, that, yeah. two two adjectives, and uh, crit or something like that. If we say, like, I think literally it applies comes down to two words. Like if yeah, we say this like funny, this uh, this distinctive and vibrant very, track yeah, or something yeah. like that. It's, it's very hard to, you know, again, music's music. You've got to hear it. To talk about it is almost like somebody boring you talking about their summer holidays when you've never been there. Exactly. Or people's dreams. Yeah. It's like, it's almost, you, you, you're once removed and you just can't do it. Um, we'll, think about nice, thing, we'll think about something and we'll come up with something great. We'll come up with something different. Yeah. Because we've done this, what, five times now? We've done five movies, and maybe we should... I mean, there's plenty of movies to talk about and recommend. Yeah, we'll never run yeah. out of movies. Never run out of movies, but may, i tell you what might be quite interesting to talk about. What? Stream, streaming versus physical media. Okay, that would be interesting. Could be interesting, couldn't it? Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll end up talking about something that is kind of plays back into being a specific film. Okay, anyway... Uh, thank you very much. And my sign off well. is 
because you don't really have a sign off. My sign off is actually stay alive till next time. But do you, do you want to sign off or do you, uh, is no, that too cheesy for you? Show. You do the signing off. Okay, well, stay alive till next time. Bye. This podcast was produced, edited, and mixed by Sebastian Middleman. My collaborators for the series are Russ Nichols, David Conow, and Marae Starr.